Good morning. I think I got one response on that, so I'm going to go ahead and do it again. <laughs> Good morning. There, there's a few more, so we'll, we'll go with that. Um, I, I'm really glad to see uh, so many people here today, and um, we are going to continue on in Colossians. And we're going to, I'm going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 8, and I'm going to read through that paragraph and then on into uh, that next paragraph that starts in verse 16. And uh, the reason I'm going to do that is I'm going to try to kind of connect those two paragraphs as we look at that second paragraph. So the focus, the bulk of the message is going to be on 16 uh, through 19. But for context purposes, I'm going to start in verse 8. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's pray before we dive into the message. Dear Lord, I thank you again this morning for your word, how it is a a light unto our feet, a lamp to our, our path. Father, I pray that you would use it this morning to guide us in our thoughts, Lord, how we approach you, how we worship you. Father, I pray that you would uh, enlighten our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to communicate your word, the truth that I would, I would correctly divide the word of God. Lord, we ask these things for your glory and the church's good. Amen. When we started this section of, Coloss- of Colossians, beginning in verse 8, uh, I mentioned that we didn't know exactly what the false teaching Paul was contradicting, what it was Paul was was teaching against. And I said that we can only really make an educated guess based upon what Paul says and, and how he treats it. And we spent some time in verse 8 uh, studying the characteristics that Paul gave to the false teaching, that it was according to human tradition, uh, it was philosophy, empty to see, um, those, those, those characteristics. But as you may have noticed, those weren't very specific. Well, Paul begins this section with a command. See to it that, or excuse me, Paul began the section in verse 8 
um, which is, which is in, 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 my, in my thinking is a part of this paragraph and then the following paragraph that we'll cover next week. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And he characterizes the false teaching and then he kind of launched into correct teaching about Christ, about our salvation in Christ. So verses 9 through 15 were, were um, Paul talking about who Christ is and, and who we are in him and our connection with him. Uh, the salvation, the work of Christ and our salvation in him is the objective and, uh, and, and then the, um, man, I just lost the word, the objective salvation that we have in Christ and then what God has done, done within us to change us. And so in this, in this paragraph, starting in verse 16, uh, Paul returns to giving commands, giving, giving warnings and, and how to deal with a false teaching. So he gives two commands in, in the paragraph of verse 16 through 19. The first one is he says, let no one pass judgment on you. And the second one is let no one disqualify you. Now, I think that these two commands are the same as Paul's original command to make sure no one takes you captive. There's a there's kind of a stalwart um, feeling and, and directive of, of stand strong. Don't let someone else do this to you. And so I just think that uh, they're, they're said in different words. And so Paul is, is taking the idea of guarding ourselves from the false teaching and giving us different aspects of that warning that we're going to explore here in just a minute. Now, of course, Paul, as Paul normally does, returns to the idea of guarding ourselves. So you had the verse 8, the don't see where no one takes you captive. And then he gives the, the commentary on Christ and the, and the true teaching of Christ. And then he returns in verse 16 to giving warnings, to giving commands with the word therefore. And this is to remind us that the whole reason Paul took a sidestep from these warnings that he was going to be listing is to make sure that we are grounded in the ultimate truth that will, if we believe and hold fast to it, be the weapon by which we guard ourselves from false teaching. And what is this truth? This truth is the reality of who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, and what Christ has done in us. So up until this point, Paul has given us a very high view of Christ. He has raised Christ above every rule and authority, every being in the spiritual world, he has raised Christ above them. He has made Christ no less than God himself. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation through whom, by whom, and for whom are all things created. Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the preeminent one. And Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the one who came to sacrifice himself for sinners, to be their propitiation. Jesus is the one through whom God will reconcile everything to himself. Jesus has disarmed all the rulers and authorities. And through Jesus... We have received forgiveness of sins, the renewal of our spirits, so that we can live in right relationship with God 
through Christ and live upright and holy lives. We have to make sure that these truths are deep within our minds. If, if we do not have them deep within us, then we are susceptible to all kinds of false teaching. When, we, when glorifying Christ is not at the center of our lives, at the center of our thoughts, at the center of our motivations, we become easy prey for all sorts of false teaching and sinful activity. So Paul's first command, his first warning that he gives in verse 16, look at it with me. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this, uh, this, this command, this warning to, to not let anyone pass judgment on you may sound strange to us. I mean, when I read that without giving it much thought, I'm thinking, I can't control whether somebody else judges me. Like, that's kind of on them, isn't it? I mean, I can't get inside their heads or I can't demand that they not judge me. That's, that's on them. So what exactly is Paul telling me when he says, hey, don't let anyone pass judgment on you? Well, I think what Paul is saying is don't be persuaded by their pressure or their criticism. Meaning people are going to judge. People are going to form opinions. But that's not exactly the main thing. It's when you allow that to alter the, your course of action based on their opinion of you and not based on Christ. So we are to stand firmly on the solid rock of Christ, on his word, and not let them pressure us into a, a practice or a belief that, that we actually disagree with. So Paul's saying, don't succumb to the pressure of these false teachers. Don't succumb to their judgment. When somebody judges you, in our culture, we kind of like want to puff out our chest and dig in our heels and be stubborn and, and push back and say, you can't judge me. You, you, you can't force me to do something I don't want to do. But in reality, it seems like those are like the extreme instances. Because everyone is susceptible to the opinions of others. Everyone is susceptible to being persuaded or pushed a little bit in a direction that we wouldn't otherwise go. But okay, to appease this person, to not cause a big scene, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and give a little bit in this area. Now, there are times when we should succumb to criticism and pressure. Notice what Paul says. He doesn't say... Let no one pass judgment on you on anything or everything. There's a specific area that he is talking about. He says, don't let others pass judgment on you. Don't succumb to their pressure in the questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What's he talking about here? There's a lot of questions on where these false teachers came from. What was it they were actually teaching? Who were they? We don't have, we don't, we don't have the answers to those things. But through this, through this one paragraph, we can conclude a couple of things. 
The fact that there's food and drink and festivals, new moon, and the Sabbath, that he, Paul would use that word Sabbath, says that, that these false teachers have some kind of Jewish connection. The, the, the Old Testament law was full of dietary laws, and it was, there were was certain um, festivals and days of observances, and, and, the, and the, uh, the Sabbath was a weekly holy day that they were to observe. And so, while I wouldn't go so far as to say that they were Jews coming in and trying to uh, take the Christians and persuade them to follow the, the Old Testament law, it does seem that there is an element in there. Now, Paul gives a reason. Paul gives a reason why these believers in Colossae should not succumb to the pressure. And the reason is found in verse 17. These, meaning the dietary laws of food and drink, or the festival of the new moon and the Sabbath, these things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul is saying, these laws, these rules, these observances were given in the Old Testament to point to Christ. Now, how many of you have ever been away from a loved one for a long enough amount of time where you just desperately miss that person? You, you, you just really want to talk to them. Oh, if they were just here, I could talk to them. What are you missing? Are you missing the fact that they're going to cast a shadow? Are you missing, when you talk to that person, you're not going to talk to the shadow when they're standing right there. You actually miss the person and who they are. And Paul is saying that the shadow is a forerunner to the substance. So the reference to the Old Testament law and the religious activities, the false teachers um, were, were, were promulgating, was had it flip-flopped. Christ had come. Christ had lived, he had died, and he had sent the Spirit to live within them. And they were too busy focusing on the things in the Old Testament, that they were missing the substance of Christ. The Old Testament shadow came first and provided a representation of the New Covenant object. So that their focus was just off. Now I think there's a greater point here even beyond the, the food and, and drink and the, and the observance of days, is where is our focus? Are we focused on observing certain traditional holidays, certain traditions of man? Or do we get caught up in areas of the Christian religious experience that we miss who it is we're supposed to be worshiping? We miss the relationship we're supposed to be maintaining with Christ. We think that doing all of these other things makes up for that. That is called legalism. Legalism is obeying rules and doing stuff to get right with God. And the specific kind of legalism that these false teachers were promulgating is they were saying, this is how we live our lives so this is how we think you should live your life. It's one thing that if you have some rules that you know yourself, 
You know, if I if I take a step over here, I'm gonna it's a slippery slope for me, and so I'll fall all the way down the slope. And so I put a barrier there to help keep me from crossing that line. That's okay. That's right. That's appropriate. But your spirituality is not found in your rote obedience to that rule you've given yourself. The spirit, true spirituality comes from a relationship with Christ. And then it's a completely different thing when you take the barrier that you need for your personal life to keep you from falling into areas that, that you know are wrong for you and you go and apply that to everybody else. There, everyone else has to live according to their conscience and the Holy Spirit and how he leads them according to his word. But then I go back to the times in which we should accept criticism and we should succumb to pressure. When we are criticized, when someone comes to us and, and calls us out on something, we should receive it with an open mind and a heart that goes Well, quite frankly, a heart that goes immediately to Christ and say, was there a warrant in that? Is what they said true? And how do I deal with it? How do I become better? If our effort to be spiritual through obedient, through obeying rules can make us more spiritual, then Jesus Christ didn't need to come and die. Let me say that a different way. If our effort to be spiritual is effective, then Christ's work on the cross was unnecessary. I have rules in my life that I have there to keep me from stumbling in areas that I'm prone to stumble in. But just because I obey those rules doesn't make me a spiritual person. What makes me a spiritual person is the work of Jesus Christ and my faith in that work. And the Spirit of God living in me. Let's move on to the next point. Paul's second warning, his second command that he gives starts in verse 18. Look at it with me. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, I think that this, let no one disqualify you, is saying similar but slightly different thing than let no one pass judgment upon you. Because once again, how can I help if someone deems me as unworthy? What Paul is saying is that if you do, so, okay, so the first command back in verse 8 was let no one uh, take you captive. And then he says, let no one pass judgment upon you. If you, if you give in to those two commands, if you don't uphold them, if you don't stand firm, then what's going to happen? If you give in to this false teaching, you will be disqualified. My, that is a sobering statement. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, well, before I get there, let me, let, me, let me preface it with this. Disqualified from what? Paul said multiple times, I run the race in a way that I am not disqualified. Disqualified means it doesn't count. It was in vain. You put all this work and effort into this and it doesn't count for anything. How many times have we seen just over this past year sports teams or college-gate athletic departments who have not obeyed the rules and so championships are taken away from them? All that work for nothing. You did all this for a goal and that goal is taken away. You don't even qualify for it anymore. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says this. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you did receive, in which you do stand, and by which you are being saved. If, if, You hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. They received the word. They stand on it. They were like they were being saved. But if you don't hold fast, if you don't keep hold of the gospel of Jesus, your original belief in it was vain. In Hebrews 3, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says, we have come to share in Christ. He's speaking to you. We, we share together in Christ. We're together. We're a community in Christ. We're, we're part of God's people in Christ. If that is the key to understanding this teaching. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, The reality is true, authentic, saving faith is a faith that is faithful to the end. Paul says, I didn't think of this whenever I was preparing, so I don't have the reference for you. He says, the reason why these people leave us, there are people who who, who enter the church who seem to be a part of the body and they seem to disperse, they seem to go away. They seem to fall away from the faith. He says, that's just proof that they never actually were a part of us to begin with. And when that happens, it hurts. When that happens, there's lots of questions. But the reality is, it does happen. So Paul is saying, let no one disqualify you. Make sure no one takes you captive. Make sure sure you don't succumb to the pressure of judgment and criticism. Because if you do, you will be disqualified. Now, you may say, well, Ryan, I mean, observing the food and drink and, 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 uh, and observing the, uh, the, the Old Testament law in, in some ways, how would that disqualify them? Well, notice that Paul didn't say that disqualified him. Paul says, if insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. So there's a slope that happens. There's a progression that if, if these people start focusing on the wrong thing, it can lead them down a path of destruction that causes them to be disqualified. So what is this 
insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels? Well, quite frankly, this is one of the most contested verses in the book of Colossians. And, uh, and here's, here's my take on it. Asceticism is severe, um, can be a severe self-discipline that is used to demonstrate piety or is used to um, elicit certain spiritual experiences. So uh, back, especially back in the medieval days, people would, if someone sinned, they would do penance and they would whip themselves or they would put, um, they would uh, burn themselves or something like that to try to show their penance and, and raise themselves up spiritually. I don't know that Paul is talking about exactly that, but there is, a, there is a sense in which these false teachers were saying, you need to participate in some kind of self-suffering in order to raise yourself up spiritually and have a, a higher level of piety and spiritual experience. And the fact that he connects that with the worship of angels makes me, makes me think that the asceticism was specifically used to elicit certain worshipful experiences. Now, worship of angels, we may think that, and we may, you know, I don't know what pops in your head, but kind of what popped in mine originally, which is, you know, people actually praying to the angels in the same way they would pray to God. Well, I highly doubt that that extent of worship is what's taking place here. Rather, what I think is taking place is these false teachers were encouraging the believers in Colossae to not look to Christ for certain blessings and to look to the angels instead. And that is a form of worship. When you stop looking to Jesus for protection and you start looking to somebody else for protection, even if it's, some, even if it's a dead person, even if it's an angel, that is a form of worship. So I believe strongly in the ministry of angels. God uses angels to minister to us. But when we start looking at the angels as the source of the ministry, we start praying to them or asking them, then we are now diverting our worship from God to lesser beings. And Paul says that will disqualify you. And then he goes on to say, so, um, so let me just finish up uh, summarizing in verse, verse, verse 18 here. So these false teachers, they put a deal of stock into ascetic purpose, practices, um, and, and, and they, it seems that they use them to uh, elicit or invoke um, some kind of spiritual worship experience. And, uh, and, and they did that in such a way as to make them on the level with angels and, and looking to angels um, as the venue of protection or blessing or to ward off other evil spirits rather than looking to God. And then this focus brought on visions that they had experienced. So in other words, the asceticism and the worship of angels was effective in making them feel spiritual. It did give them certain unique spiritual worshiping experiences that made them very boastful. 
that made them arrogant. It says that they're puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. That's the mind of the flesh. We've talked about the flesh being the the self-focused, rebellious, faithless aspect of ourselves, our ego. So these worshiping experiences, you know that they're false because they puffed up themselves. They thought they were better Christians. They were more spiritual because they had this spiritual experience. And it turns out that they weren't even worshiping the one true God. And ultimately, it reveals that they have a mind that is focused on the world and not on Christ. Now, my takeaway from this might be different than some. But I found it very interesting that these people were very spiritual. They had an an inkling to invoke spiritual experiences which made them feel good. And yet they were completely controlled by the flesh. They were completely controlled and motivated by selfish ambition and selfishness. So it is possible to have spiritual insight and yet the flesh can take that insight and produce arrogance and judgmentalness. It's possible to have a worshipful experience that is not worshiping God in the slightest, but it makes you feel good as a person. So one has to tread carefully and practice humility and meekness when God has given us insight or vision, lest we think we're better than somebody else. Now, this isn't proof of a higher spirituality, but, but of God's grace. Given if, if, when God does give us insight, when God does give us wisdom, when, when we... When we are, are, are even standing here on a Sunday morning and we're worshiping the Lord and he fills us with the grace to, to forget about ourselves and worship him, that is his blessing. That is his grace. So to sum up um, the, the, the false teaching, especially in verse 18 and, and, and 19, the focus of the false teachers was on an experience and not on Christ. Worship was about themselves and how they felt, and not about Christ. They, they believe that these experiences and feelings are what made them spiritual. And the more intense the worship experience, the more spiritual they became. So that means that I need to say a word on worship before we close. Worship is an act that involves both the mind and the heart. We are to be involved emotionally and feel something when we worship. But even when we don't feel, we are still to worship. Worship is about the glory of God and not us. So whatever one experiences in worship, maybe you're really, really down and and things are really difficult and you don't know how you're going to make it, you can still turn your mind and praise the glory of God and his goodness. Maybe everything is going wonderful for you and you just turn your, your thoughts to God and give a praise to him. That's worship too. 
So whatever one experiences in worship, the object test of truth, excuse me, the objective test of truth must prevail. So Christ, rather than experiences, determines spiritual reality. I don't know how many of you have ever been to to, to a natural wonder or just seeing an absolutely stunning sunset. What, what happens when that takes place? You're, you're caught up in just the wonder. You're caught up in the beauty. You're caught up in the magnificence of the object. You lose yourself. You're not thinking about yourself. When you, when you look at the Grand Canyon, I've never been there, but I've heard stories. When you look at the Grand Canyon, that is what you are just overwhelmed at the greatness of it. I mean, it's in the name. That's what that's a picture of worship. Worship is about losing yourself, forgetting about yourself, and putting all of your attention and focus on God and who He is and what He's done for you. And, and when that happens, that's not a filling up of yourself and your how good you feel about yourself. That's an emptying of yourself as Christ emptied himself to come and serve and die for us. That is an example of worship. So I, I encourage you and admonish you, worship isn't just something that we do here on Sunday mornings. You can worship every day. And in fact, you, you should be, whether you realize it or not, worshiping God every day in the things that you do. And turning your mind to him and, and being thankful. Thankfulness is an act of worship. Prayer requests are an act of worship. An act of service can be an act of worship. If you're, whatever you're doing, if you're doing it for the glory of God, with your mind on him and not to fill yourself, that is an act of worship. So let me pray and we'll, we'll finish. Dear Father, I pray that through the, the teaching and preaching and reading of your word, Lord, we would be filled with worship for you. Lord, I pray that as we go about our week, Lord, we would seek to empty ourselves, that we would not go throughout our, our, our spiritual activities to, to fill us up and make us feel better about ourselves, but that it would be an emptying of ourselves towards you, thinking about you, the truths of God, the truths of your word, the glories of God, the wondrous works of God. Lord, I ask that you would do this so that your people would know you, would be filled with the knowledge of God and live lives that are pleasing to you and glorifying to you. I ask this in Jesus' name for the good of your church. Amen. I'd invite you to to worship as we sing. And you can worship through prayer. You can worship through uh, singing. You can worship uh, through uh, confessing sin. You worship however the Lord's called you to.